This past semester, we have had in this space at this time, Wednesday night worship, and it's been really good. We've really enjoyed it. We wanted to bring back lenses for three weeks, specifically to look at a topic that I think is uh, quite important, sexuality in the church. Uh, we are going to cover this in, in kind of three ways, and when I say cover this, you'll never really cover all of it, but this is a conversation that's very important. It's important for us to have as Christians. It's important for us to have as a church. Uh, Dr. Matt Curlin is our speaker tonight. Matt is a friend of mine. He teaches Sunday school in the Young Professional Department. He's a member here at Shades. He's the Assistant Vice President of Student Affairs at Samford University. I don't think Matt would say he's an expert on this topic, but I know that this world uh, affects him, and he's a very good thinker and communicator, and so I'm very glad you're here tonight, Matt. Trey and Melody Lovern are going to be here next week to talk about sexual brokenness in the church. And then Dr. Doug Webster, who's a professor at Beeson Divinity School, is coming week three to talk about the church and its response to same-sex attraction. I say all that to say is that there's good things happening tonight and coming forward. So I hope the next couple weeks you will be able to be here. I think tonight we will start by reading scripture together. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read a passage together from Acts chapter 15, verses 28 and 29, and then I will open us up in prayer. Uh, let us read together. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Let us pray. Great and mighty God, we thank you and praise you for who you are and for how you've created us. I pray, Father, that as we have this conversation tonight and conversations going forward, we remember who you are and how you have created us. I pray, Father, that you would give us grace, give us mercy, let us recognize that we are all fallen uh, and that we all can be restored again through your love and the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. I pray for Matt tonight that you would lead him and speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Matt, I'm going to say one more thing coming up. Uh, at the end of Matt's time, we're going to have Q&A together. So if a, a question comes to you, feel free to write it down and you'll get a chance to, uh, to ask Matt at the end. Thanks. Sorry about that. Good morning or evening rather. Uh, during this three-week series, in some respects, I have the easiest of the three jobs because I know Trey and Melody have a difficult task to talk about sexual brokenness and Dr. Webster to talk about same-sex attraction. Tonight, I'm going to discuss how we got here as a culture. So my training is in historical theology, and so this is an easy topic for me to examine how we got from what we see as God's model for sexuality in Scripture to what we see in our culture at large. There's a great illustration in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, in a chapter on sexual morality where he uses this illustration. He says, imagine if you walked into a room and someone was standing in front of the room and they had on a plate... Uh, that was covered by something, and there was this music playing in the background, and the lights were kind of dim, and there was lights kind of flashing around the room, and people were cheering, and slowly someone lifted up the top of that tray to reveal a hamburger, and everyone went crazy. He says, imagine that scenario. You would think something has gone awry with these people's appetite for food, and imagine a world in which people were so obsessed with food that they used food to sell other things, that people talked about food all the time, that food was everywhere you looked, that there were entire internet sites you know, develop, uh, devoted to all kinds of strange appetites for different kinds of foods. One would rightfully conclude something has gone wrong with the appetite for food. And of course, Lewis is talking about what he sees in Europe in the 1950s. But it doesn't take much creativity or imagination for us to look around our culture and say that something has clearly gone wrong with our appetite for sex, the way we think about sex, the way we talk about sex, the way it is used in our society, something is broken. So to begin, I want us to go back to 
the original intention of God's creation. And I want to read just a few passages from the book of Genesis and make a few points about the original plan that God had, and then we'll talk about how we went from there to here. So in Genesis 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Then in chapter 2, when God takes from the man a rib and fashions a woman and brings her to the man, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed." And then in chapter 3, after the fall, when God shows up and God pronounces the, the punishment, the curses in response to their disobedience, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and in pain you shall bring forth children. Now, here are the lessons I think we can take from those passages of scripture. First is that God created a world with man and woman, created in God's image. We are human beings created in the image of our creator. We are made, in some respect, like God, male and female. And God looked at this and said, this is very good. We were created, male and female, and given the instruction to multiply. That's the first command God gives in chapter 1. God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. And then when, in chapter 2, Adam sees Eve for the first time, he speaks in poetry, demonstrating delight, demonstrating pleasure, uh, demonstrating attraction. And we're told for that reason, then, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to a wife. Multiplication, delight, and oneness. These were the purposes for which God created human sexuality. But of course, and and he said, this is very good. But of course, it's broken. And when it was broken, sin entered the world and affected not only the spiritual dimension of our existence as sexual beings, but it affected the physical dimension of our existence as sexual beings, as is illustrated by the curses from chapter 3. Now, this is God's original intent, and this is how and where it went wrong. Now, how did we go from God's original intent to the place where we are now? Well, I'm just going to begin by tracing a few different important thinkers in the history of Western thought. So if you grew up in the United States or you grew up in Western Europe... These are people who've had some degree of influence on how you think. They've had influence on the people who have trained the ministers who have preached the sermons and taught the Sunday school lessons that you've heard for years. So whether you're immediately aware of this or not, these are some people who've had remarkable influence on the way that we think in our context, in our culture. So I'm just going to begin with Plato. This is mid-400s B.C., and I want to tell you a story from Plato that every college freshman probably reads from Plato's Republic, and it is the allegory of the cave. And in Plato's Republic, he describes the allegory in this way. He says, imagine a cave in which people are chained from birth 
So their hands and their feet and their necks are chained so that they are facing the wall of the cave. And behind them is the opening of the cave. And there is a fire behind them that is casting light and casting shadows on the wall of the cave. So that as people walk and move back and forth in front of the light, all that the people chained in the cave are able to see are the shadows. All that they know of reality is what they see in shadow. That, for them, is their reality. For Plato, this describes the human condition. We see only in part. We see shadows. We see approximations. We see only a world that is partial, that is flawed, that is only hinting at the ideal, the perfection, the the real, true beauty of reality. That's our fallen condition. And that was Plato's philosophy that is sometimes called idealism. What we see is an approximation of the ideal. We recognize things only because they are an approximation of this concept we have of ideal perfection. I could draw on this dry erase board a circle and you would recognize this circle because you all know what a circle looks like and you all know that mathematically a circle is defined as a set of points equidistant from the center. That's the geometrical definition of a circle. But of course you all know this is not actually a circle because I am not capable of drawing a actual circle. But none of you would look at that and say, that's not a circle. I mean, you recognize it because you have in your mind a concept of what a perfect circle would look like. I could even have a computer draw this circle and it still wouldn't be absolutely perfect, but you would recognize it. For Plato, that's the world we live in. He separates matter and spirit. This is 400 years before the New Testament was written. And for Plato, the material world is the world that we live in. The spiritual world, the ideal world, is the world toward which we strive, toward which our souls long. The reason we get education, the reason we develop virtue for Plato is because it moves us closer to that realm of ideals, that realm of perfection. And so Plato does something very important in the allegory of the cave. He separates matter from spirit, the material world from the spiritual world. Now, the reason this is important is because following Plato, there were philosophers who took that belief an additional step and concluded that matter was evil and that only the spiritual world was good. And that philosophy later became known as Gnosticism, and much of the New Testament is written to combat that theological heresy, that false belief that the material world is evil, only the spiritual world is good. Remember, what did God say when he had created everything? He looked at all that he had created, and behold, it was very good. So Gnosticism posed some problems for Christians. If the material world is evil and only the spiritual world is good, then what do we say about Jesus? How and in what sense is Jesus the incarnation of divine perfection? How can Jesus be human, be flesh and blood, and also be divine? For Gnostics, that makes no sense. And so Gnostics either denied the divinity of Jesus or they denied the humanity of Jesus. They came up with all these interesting theories about, well, Jesus was human until a certain point, maybe after the resurrection, and then he became divine. Or he was divine during his life, and so he only appeared to suffer. He only appeared to be hungry. He only appeared to be disappointed or to be angry or to uh, be sleepy or tired. These were appearances. He was really divine the whole time. Gnostics did damage to the Christian belief in Jesus as the God who was human, fully God, fully a man, because it didn't fit their philosophical belief system. Now, the second way that Gnosticism caused problems for Christian belief 
has to do with morality. If the body, if the material world is evil and only the spiritual world is good, then this led people to one of two conclusions. Either we should do with our bodies whatever we want, because after all, they are evil, so the spiritual world is what really matters, then we can do with our physical bodies whatever we want. This led to the philosophy of hedonism or pleasure-seeking, self-gratification. That was one extreme that resulted from Gnosticism. But on the other extreme, there were a group of people who said, well, if the body is evil, then we should do everything we can to beat it into submission. We should deny pleasure to the body. We should live lives of strict asceticism or self-denial so as to keep the body in check so it doesn't overwhelm the more important spiritual realities. And as a matter of fact, we've been studying the book of Colossians here at Shades, and in all likelihood, Colossians is one of those books in the New Testament that is grappling with some kind of heretical belief that seems to be like Gnosticism. Because in chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul says these words to the, to the Colossian. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. Uh, those are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. No one, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and so forth. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, which means self-denial, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's the end of chapter 2. And then near the very beginning of chapter 3, now remember when Paul was writing, he didn't use chapter divisions. That was a Bible editor. So literally in the same thought, Paul says this, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, in just a matter of a few sentences, Paul tells them, hey, don't let people guilt you into asceticism or self-denial, and don't let people tempt you into self-indulgence. He's warning them against two opposite errors with respect to sexuality, don't succumb to the Gnostic belief in asceticism or the Gnostic belief in hedonism. The extremes of rigid self-denial or rampant self-gratification are both perversions of the Christian gospel. They're both perversions of the Bible. They're perversions of the good world that God created, a world that included sexuality which is part of being created in the image of God, that included sexuality for the purposes of multiplication and unity and oneness and pleasure and delight. These things were part of God's good creation and Christians buying into some aspects of Greek philosophy perverted that message and decided that either sex was something to be completely avoided as evil, or completely indulged in. And Paul in Colossians warns against both of those extremes. So, it's not difficult to see how in our history, as people, most of us who grew up in the West, that from that same foundation of Greek philosophy, you could have the Victorian era, with all of its mores and strict uh, rules and regulations and very careful preventions of sexual excesses on the one hand and the sexual revolution of the 1960s on the other, both stemming from the same kind of Western intellectual tradition, you get those kind of extremes. So it begins with Plato and with people who perverted Plato and did it in ways that compromised the Christian gospel. And the New Testament writers spoke against it because they understood that the truth of Scripture is the right way to see sexuality as it is to be lived and experienced in this world. Now, there's a few other steps along the way. 
when we move into the, the modern era, this is the 1600s, what we call the age of reason or the enlightenment, when there began to develop, especially in Western Europe and then later in the United States, this belief that reason would be the cure for all that ails us, that we could solve all of our problems and cure all our diseases and fix all of our social ills if people were educated and thoughtful and behaved in rational ways. And in that context, there was a philosopher, a French philosopher named René Descartes, who wrote in the mid-1600s, and he is famous for the phrase, I think, therefore I am. And here's how Descartes came up with that statement. Uh, Descartes believed that as rational human beings, we should doubt everything that we can possibly doubt. That this is what it means to live an intelligent and a rational life. We should be doubters. Doubt everything you can doubt until you get to that one thing that you cannot doubt. And that becomes a foundational belief. And for Descartes, the one thing that he could not doubt was the fact that he was doubting. That he was a thinking person. If I am a thinking person, I cannot doubt that I am doubting. So the validation, the verification of my existence as a human being is that I am a thinking person. I think, therefore I am. Now, just as Plato split matter and spirit. Now Descartes has split body and mind. Because what develops from Descartes is this sense that I am not a person created in the image of God. I am a thinking person. I am a rational being. And the operations of my mind are separate from the operations of my body. And the two don't really have much of an effect on one another. How I feel is not nearly as important or nearly as relevant it does not validate my existence. It is not a foundational belief for me. How I think, the operations of my mind, those are the things that validate who I am. There is my identity. I think, therefore I am. And so a lot of Western science and Western medicine is built on this, this dualism of mind and body. When you go to the doctor and you may say to the doctor, well, I'm having trouble sleeping at night. And the doctor is more likely to say, okay, well, let's, they'll do a physical, right? They'll look at your vital signs. They'll do some blood work. They'll try to see if there's any physiological cause for your sleeplessness. And then maybe they'll prescribe Ambien and send you on your way. A doctor is treating your body. He's not likely to ask She's not likely to ask questions about how you feel or what's going on in your life socially or are you stressed out at work? I mean, maybe they spend five minutes with you when you go to the doctor anyway because they're treating your body. Now, if you want someone who can help you with how you are thinking, you go to a different doctor for that because even in our Western way of thinking, we've split the mind from the body and we owe that to some degree to Rene Descartes. Now, just as Plato's split of matter and spirit is problematic for Christians, the split between mind and body is also problematic for Christians because if the validation of your existence is your rational thinking, then your body becomes less important. It becomes less valuable. What you do with your body doesn't matter. So long as you are functioning thoughtfully and rationally as a human being, this is what makes you a good and ethical person, what you do with your body is far less important, far less significant. It minimizes the physical. That's Rene Descartes. Now, next thinker, Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche is famous for his death of God philosophy. God is dead, Nietzsche once famously said, and he does not mean, Nietzsche did not mean that God was once alive and then got sick and died. Here's what Nietzsche means. That there was a time in our history when belief in God and the morality of Christian theology affected the way we lived. It influenced how we made decisions about our lives. But 
For Nietzsche in the mid-1800s, he recognized that increasingly people were living their lives as if God did not exist. Either they were overtly atheistic or they were practically atheistic. They lived their regardless of what they said they believed, he looked around and noticed that people lived their lives as if God did not exist. So for Nietzsche, he said, we should just be honest and acknowledge that we've got to rethink our world without God. No longer can our world be governed by outdated beliefs in Christian morality. Those absolutes no longer apply. That is a matter of one person's perspective, and it's relative to one's culture and one's upbringing. Instead, we should acknowledge the fact that there are no absolutes that we can all agree on. There are no absolutes that legislate how we all live. We have to function as though God is dead. Instead, we create our own values. We create our own morals. We create our own purposes in life, and we move forward to achieve those purposes, what Nietzsche called will to power. That is the ethic by which we live. Self-fulfillment is the ultimate objective. So if you separate matter and spirit, and if you separate body and mind, and if you implement an ethic that says self-fulfillment is the ultimate goal, now suddenly the sexual revolution of the 1960s makes perfect sense. It's easy in the absence of that context to look at the sexual revolution and to think those people lost their minds. But if you've been sipping from the cup of Western civilization, then you acquire a taste for the kinds of things that the sexual revolution promoted and you don't think twice about it. The remarkably permissive attitudes towards sexual behavior that the sexual revolution gave us, the decline in the marriage rate, the increase in the divorce rate, the birth of the modern mega-industry of pornography, the hyper-sexualized culture that we live in, that were the hallmarks of the sexual revolution make perfect sense if you divorce matter from spirit and mind from body and tell people to live however you choose to live. The sexual revolution makes perfect sense in that context. Add to that a couple of technological advancements that made the sexual revolution able to progress with far fewer ramifications. The invention of penicillin and the birth control pill. Now we can prevent pregnancy and we can cure sexually transmitted diseases. And so now the sexual revolution is in full swing. And you look today and you see what we have observed in our culture in terms of Stories and confessions of sexual assault in a hypersexualized culture that we live in, in a culture that's remarkably permissive with respect to alcohol, in a culture where pornography is ubiquitous and incredibly easily accessed on every device that every one of you have in your pockets. And it's no wonder that we've reached a place where now men feel free in our culture to treat women as objects. And women are now speaking out against that. And yet, we have arrived at a place where really the only thing we can say about sexual ethics is that as long as it takes place between two consenting adults, it's okay. That's more or less the ethos of our age, right? The attitude of our age is two consenting adults, great. Other than that, no. Well, that's a far cry from Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? And it is evidence that the curses of Genesis 3, the brokenness that Genesis 3 introduces, has reached its kind of full force in our society. The sexual revolution, ultimately, it ends up with objectification of other human beings. It ends up disappointing. It ends up in disillusionment. The self-fulfillment that it promises is a broken promise. The freedom that it promises turns out to enslave people to addictions. 
the oneness, the unity, the camaraderie, the friendship, the intimacy that it promises, is these are broken promises. And so we have emerged from the sexual revolution with a kind of desert land sexually where into that emptiness, into that brokenness, into that lack of fulfillment, fulfillment Christians are able to, to speak. And they're able to say that God's design for sexuality, which seems so countercultural to us now, historically, from the beginning, has been the most common, the most mainstream view. For Christians, for Jews, for Muslims, it has always been that sex was, was intended for a man and a woman in the context of marriage. That's always been the Christian sex ethic. And now if you say that, you are seen as the backwater person. You are seen as the one with regressive views, when in fact that's been the mainstream view for most of history. So when we look at the sexual revolution, it's very easy to be judgmental and to say those people are crazy. But if you think about the sexual revolution as simply the the next logical step in the progression, people behaving the way people without Christ behave, then it gives you a different way of thinking about how our culture ended up where it ended. So before we do question and answer, I'm going to suggest kind of three ways that Christians can respond to the sexual climate that we find ourselves in today. Uh, Number one is avoid the extremes of hedonism and asceticism. Avoid those extremes. That is, uh, I'll tell you, I kind of grew up in a more or less a kind of Gnostic Christian environment because I heard so many times how dangerous sex was, how bad it could be, how much it could mess you up. As a teenager, we had conferences, and they were so intent on making sure that we had drilled into our heads the importance of sexual purity, which is something I appreciated, but I think I also, the side effect of that was an absence of the understanding of the beauty and the value of of sex. That was one extreme. The the other extreme is to simply say, whatever you want to do, just be safe. Whatever you want to do, as long as it's two mutually consenting adults, just be safe. And I'm saying Christians have to steer clear of those extremes, uh, because neither, both of them are perversions of the gospel. All right, so avoid hedonism and asceticism. Uh, number two is recognize that, that Christian morality involves three things, and here they are. Christian morality involves, uh, these are the three parts. Number one, I have to be in a right relationship with you. Christian morality means that I can't use you as, an, as a means to my own end. I cannot mistreat you. I have to treat you as I would want to be treated. Right? That's obvious. That is the one ethical belief that I think our culture more or less holds in common. Our culture can't tell you why, but more or less we agree that we should treat one another respectfully. But that's only one part of morality. Christian morality involves two more important things. Number two is I actually have to be in harmony with, with my, myself. Not only do I have to be at peace with you, I have to be at peace with myself. And the third part of morality is I actually have to be in conformity with the purposes for which this world was created. I have to be in tune with what God has created me to do in this world. Here's the illustration I would use, and this is, again, I lifted from C.S. Lewis in his chapter on this subject in Mere Christianity. If you are, let's, I, I played the French horn in, high, in college, in high school and in college. So I played in the LSU Symphony. This is how I got through college. And as a French horn player, I can tell you, I have to be in tune with the people around me, right? I have to be in tune with the French horn player sitting to my right, with the trumpets blaring in my ear behind me, right, with the flutes sitting up there on the front row. Like, I have to be in tune with them. But I also have to be in tune with myself. When I play middle C, and then I play E, and then I play G, those three notes have to be in tune 
with themselves on my own instrument. But the third part is I actually have to be playing the notes on the page. It's not enough for me just to be in tune with the people around me and in tune with myself, but playing my own song. That's not how an orchestra works. That's not how the world works. I have to be playing the notes that the composer wrote on the page. Christian morality says something a whole lot more powerful than just mutually consenting adults. It says that, but it also says I have to be at peace with me and I have to be at peace with God's purposes for sexuality in the first place, which, as I described, included multiplication and delight and oneness. In fact, a kind of oneness that reflects Christ's relationship with the church. In Revelation 21, what is the metaphor that is used to describe the end of all time? And I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem was coming down out of the clouds like a bride prepared for her groom. The legislating metaphor that John uses to describe the end of all time is that of of a marriage feast, a celebration. The church is the bride of Christ. The oneness that we see at its best in a good marriage is only a shadow. It's only an approximation of the oneness we will one day know with Christ. It's a signpost. It is pointing us in that direction. And it can only do that if we adhere to all three parts of morality, not just the one that our culture is fond of touting, but all three. All right, so first, avoid the extremes. Second, three parts morality, not just one. And finally, number three, is to engage our culture with grace and truth. So I think the best story I could think of to describe this attitude comes from John chapter 8. So I'm going to read this to you. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And he stood up, and he said to her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Okay, two things Jesus says that are both extraordinarily important. He says, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. Because there was only one person in that crowd who could have thrown the first stone, and it was him, And he didn't. Neither do I condemn you. She did not get what she deserved, according to their reading of the law of Moses. That's grace. But then he said something equally important. Go and sin no more. That's truth. Now, if we speak grace without truth, that grace is weak, it's inept, it's impotent. It's meaningless. Grace without truth is milk toast. It's, it will not accomplish the purposes of the gospel. But if we speak truth without grace, that's harsh. It's condemning. It's judgmental. It's not the way of Jesus. Grace and truth. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. When we look at the sexual revolution and its outgrowth and the distorted sexuality we see in our current culture with appetites incredibly messed up. Grace and truth. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I think that's the church's response. I think that's how we got here in part. 
And I think that's how the gospel would call us to respond to our culture at large, to challenge our culture to look at the brokenness and the emptiness of the sexual revolution and know that God intended sexuality for something far better. Okay, now, question and answer. And Jacob has a microphone. Do we have any questions? We are using the microphone for the sake of the podcast. You don't have to say your name, so it can be anonymous when it is on the podcast. That would be fine. Any questions? Yes. Do you think grace and truth have to come at the same time in the same conversation? In this particular story, from what we know, Jesus had just a few minutes with this woman. But in the context of a relationship with someone over a long span of time, no, I don't think they come at the same time, all the time. I think this requires some sensitivity to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Um, I think it requires some knowledge that you're, you're in a trusting relationship with someone with whom you're going to have multiple opportunities to interact. So uh, an example of this, I did have a parent call me once and ask. The parent had discovered some things about their son sexually that, was, that were, they were deeply disturbing to them. And they were calling for advice about how to confront him about it. What do we say? And my advice to them was the first thing you say is, I love you. We care about you. We're going to walk with you through this no matter what. We're your parents and we love you. You've got, if you say that, you've got a long time in the relationship to say the other things that you need to say. But if you don't say that, what you say may be the last thing you're able to say into the relationship. So timing matters. Good question. Others? Um, to comment on your first point, to avoid the extremes, um, I think uh, Christian culture does a decent job of avoiding the extremes, right? But uh, I guess where is reconciliation like in the midst of those extremes in pursuing a Christ-centered conversation about sexuality? Does that make sense? Like avoiding the extremes, oh yeah, that's easy. The difficult part is having the conversation between, like, is talking about it between the two extremes. Um, So I guess maybe here my advice would be to embrace the whole testimony of Scripture and bring that to bear on the conversation. The Bible is not remotely prudish about sex. As a matter of fact, not only do you have some pretty careful restrictions about sexual behavior in the Bible. But you also have some very erotic love poetry in the Bible. In fact, the, the book Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, is extraordinarily erotic love poetry, particularly so if you're able to read it in the Hebrew, so I've been told, that a lot of it doesn't translate as well into English and that the translators are often a little bit shy about how they translate it. And therefore, they water down a little bit of the erotic nature of the poetry. In other words, the Bible embraces sexuality in all of its dimensions, romance, attraction, uh, passion, and at the same time, discipline. And one of the things we talk about, you know, when we discuss this among the young professionals is that even though we're part of a church that can glorify being married as though that's the end-all, be-all of human existence. We forget that Jesus was single and Paul was probably single and uh, that you're not defined by your relationship status and you don't have to have sex to be a fulfilled follower of Christ. Um, That is to say we're still sexual beings and we're still created that way for a reason and we can still honor God with our sexuality whether single or married. In singleness, that may be with Celibacy, which is essentially practice for fidelity. Nobody, this is the way to say it, the Christian sex ethic means nobody gets to do whatever they want. And so I think the way to have this conversation and avoid the extremes is to consult the full testimony of Scripture and to see what all the Bible has to say about sex from the beginning to the end. 
I hope that answered your question. Other questions? I'm not sure exactly how to ask this, but in your definition, you said when he said, who accuses you, who condemns you, and she said, no one, and you said that was grace and truth. I think that was grace, but he also added, go and sin no more. So he was saying what you were doing was sin. So how do we confront lovingly? You know, I can see how the relationship has to grow. But somewhere the truth is what God expects, what is his greatest good for us. And he didn't deny that was true when he said, go and sin no more. He considered it sin. So we have mercy, we have grace, and then there's truth there. Jesus had the advantage in this particular case of, it seems, having an agreement with the woman that what she and the man, by the way, who was not brought forward, what she and the man were doing was sin. They were in agreement. And so I think in that context, Jesus speaking truth to her in that moment made sense. Sometimes we're in situations with people who do not share our ethical beliefs, who do not share the Christian sex ethic or any sense of Christian ethics or virtue whatsoever, and that's a trickier conversation. And I think in those situations, it's a good idea to do a fair amount of listening, to know where people come from, and to do, and to not be shy to say that this is what I think scripture teaches in the right time and with the right, uh, with the right attitude, and to do it in the context of a relationship where you're demonstrating care for someone, and I also think we should feel a little bit of relief from the sense that our obligation in every situation is to advocate for our own ethical belief system. I don't think that's the case. I don't think in every situation we're obligated to do that. Jesus spent a lot of time around people, and he did not call out every sin that he saw. And when he did, it was typically toward the rich and toward the religious. Those are the sins he tended to call out most often. It's not that he didn't call out the other sins. As you pointed out, he called this sin, go and sin no more. Um, after he had shown grace and when there was some agreement between him and the woman, it seems, about the nature of what she had done. So I think this means that Christians shouldn't feel an obligation in every case to post on social media their belief about every social I issue that comes down the pipe or to call out every sin we see either in the people around us or that we see out in the world. I think that that should be done carefully and judiciously. I think oftentimes, maybe evangelicals in the South, we err on the side of truth over grace. And maybe it's okay for a while if we err on the side of grace over truth. Obviously, the objective is balance and to do both as, as Christ did it. But I think when we have said, love the sinner but hate the sin, we've often said it so often and so loudly that it comes across as hatred toward the center. And so I would suggest that lead with grace as Jesus led with grace and then trust God's spirit for the timing of the truth. Other questions? Yes. What advice would you have for someone who is having a conversation with the person who says, oh, that's outdated. Like you were talking about um, one of the philosophers saying that the Bible and its values are outdated. How can someone like me talk to someone who's in my same age group? I firmly believe that it's still relevant to me, even though it was thousands of years ago, but I don't know how to explain that to someone else. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, when someone says your beliefs are outdated. I would just point out, that's not really a rational argument. It's just kind of a sneer. It's kind of a ad hominem. It's kind of an attack of the person. It's not really a rational argument. 
So I wouldn't necessarily treat it like a rational argument that I had to sort of defeat. In other words, it's a kind of knee-jerk inclination. It's a feeling as much as it is anything else. So I don't know that that's something I would necessarily argue with. I think I might ask, okay, if the Judeo-Christian sex ethic is outdated, let's tell me about your own sex ethic. And then if you start asking questions, well, where did that come from? In, in what belief system is that grounded? The answer is usually, well, I don't know. It's what I feel. Well, if everybody just acts on how they feel, you know, how, that, that's not a world that works. That's not a society that functions. I think I would engage in a conversation, something like that. But I think I would do that in the context of just listening a good bit. Because a lot of times when people start to describe their own sex ethic, eventually they'll kind of talk themselves into the realization that they really don't have a particularly good reason for what they believe either. And then I might just point out as a historian that, um, that the Judeo-Christian sex ethic is, historically speaking, mainstream. That only recently and only in certain parts of the world have we considered that to be outdated. And how has that worked for us? Other questions? Dr. Curlin, I have a question. Uh, where is the culture going to continue to go? I know you can't predict this, but where is it going to go and how will it affect the church or how might the church be prepared for that? Oh, oh I don't, I mean, so sometimes the question is asked, are, are we worse, are people worse today than they ever were? Uh, probably not. I mean, the city of Corinth, as, as we find it in the New Testament, the book, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that was written to that church, uh, was written to people who lived in a city that was probably far, far, far more sexually explicit and pornographic than Birmingham will ever be. Uh, and the things that were going on in first century Rome, in many respects, are every bit as perverse, if not more perverse, than what goes on in our society today. So I don't know if things are getting worse. I don't think things are going to, I don't think we're going to wake up in 50 years and say, wow, people are so much more ethical than they used to be. I don't see us going that direction either. I do think that sexual mores, inclinations kind of change over time. What was acceptable in the Victorian era was not acceptable during the sexual revolution and vice versa. And I think that will change over time as cultural tendencies shift. But I can't really, I can't really predict um, and the second part of your question was, prepared. yeah, how can we be prepared? Well, I, I would say a couple of things. I think we should not hesitate as a church to talk openly about matters of sex. So most college students I interact with have had either one or zero conversations with their parents about sex. And I don't think that you have the talk with your kids. I think you talk about sex the way you talk about alcohol, the way you talk about driving, the way you talk about curfews, the way you talk about food and exercise and sleep and homework and school. It should be a part of the conversation so that you don't run the risk of communicating that sex is a taboo subject, that somehow it's bad and something that we don't talk about in polite company. I think you talk about it openly. I think having a forum like this where we discuss it openly. I think being educated about what people think and believe. I think being around people who hold different views than you do and being able to sit down and listen to them and know and understand what they believe and why they believe it is important. I think being a student of culture makes sense for Christians. Um, and just confronting it openly and honestly, I don't think we have to apologize for Christian morality. I think ultimately it will prove to be the best way to live out one's sexuality. And so I don't, we don't have to be defensive about that or feel like we're apologizing for the way that Christians believe we should live. Um, but we also don't have to be jerks about it either and cram it down people's throats and lord it over them and how dare you behave the way that is perfectly. The reason I pointed out the things that led up to the sexual revolution is simply to point out that the sexual revolution is people behaving what for them is perfectly rational behavior. It falls perfectly in line. It makes perfect sense. If you've taken the first nine steps, the tenth step makes good sense. And so not treating people as 
as though they are irrational idiots because they hold a, a view different from you, I think is really important for the church to be able to have this conversation, again, with grace and truth. I'm curious to hear what you your thoughts are on sort of the both a couple years ago how the sort of campus rape fears got kicked up and then this past year how the sexual predator sort of the wave of exposés on that is that an opportunity for the church to speak into a moment where it seems like this trend that you've been describing all night is starting to fall apart a little bit so I do think that the, the sexual assault culture, the, the epidemic of sexual assaults, particularly on college campuses, is, I think, people speaking out against that. I think laws that are strictly condemning that behavior, I think that's, those are good things. And I think the church has an opportunity to, to speak out and say those things are wrong. And I think that the Me Too movement is also an opportunity for the church to say that treating women as objects is wrong. It's sinful. It is not the way God created us. God created male and female in his image. Women and men are fellow image bearers. And so I do think it's an opportunity. I just don't see any way that the church is taking advantage of the opportunity. And some of the sexual scandals that have plagued, let's say, the Catholic Church or media moguls or Hollywood, they are not absent in churches. They're not absent in southern evangelical churches. We're less maybe open about it. We are increasingly less open than the culture around us in directly confronting abuse where it, where it happens. So I think it's a great opportunity for us to speak out for things that are, I mean, culture doesn't always get it wrong. So, um, I was listening to you talk about the kind of, um, kind of cultural separation of like the church and, and the world, I guess, but I'm finding it, uh, increasingly difficult to often engage other believers in this regard church leaders, um, ministers, even friends that, you know, may hold different beliefs, but also claim Christ. So um, without wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater, what, what can you attribute some of that to that like a lot of um, Bible reading, Christ professing believers, you know, are, are holding various understandings of this tradition? Um, what, what does that look like for us to be in relationship with them, to us be in the same large C church with them? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. How do we coexist in a church with people who hold different views of sexuality? Well, let's face it, for all of history, we've, people in a church have coexisted with others who hold very different beliefs about something. So, I'll use this as an example. I would imagine that within a church like ours, we have people who hold very different beliefs about money, about how much wealth one should accumulate, about how one should give, about how one should spend, about the kinds of things one should spend on. And we, we of course, are an incredibly financially blessed church. We, you know, announced an overage of over $800,000 in our budget last year. And there are a lot of different values we hold about how that money could be used, should be used, and so forth. But we... It doesn't split the church. It doesn't divide us. We don't disassociate from one another over those things. We sit together and we worship together and we move forward. And sometimes we disagree and we're able to do that. Um, for some reason, it seems more difficult for people to do that when it comes to matters related to sex. Uh, it seems more difficult to sit next to someone in a Sunday school class or in a pew who holds a different sex ethic than you think the Bible teaches. Uh, it, that's a harder thing, and I'm not really sure why. Um, we, as a church, have not really been, I say, I'm not, I don't mean just shades, I mean like the church in America has not been particularly strict in 
following the Bible's teaching about divorce, for example. We, we don't tend to ask questions of people when they want to join or teach a Sunday school class or be involved in leadership necessarily about their kind of marriage history. But we, and we probably wouldn't necessarily feel altogether uncomfortable if the person standing up here who was teaching this had been divorced necessarily. And I haven't been. I'm just using that as an example. But it would be different if I stood up here and told you that I had a different sex ethic than the one I've described in Scripture. That would be problematic for you. We feel differently about sex, and I don't really know how to get around that. I think we have to maybe guard our feelings and not allow sexual issues or sexual sins to be the ones that we always trumpet and always wave the flag and always call out and always condemn when that's the dust speck in someone else's eye and we have the plank in our own eye, you know? I think that's the warning we should heed from Christ that we have our own issues uh, and our own sins that we're, we're dealing with. But sexual sin just seems harder to, it seems harder to co Differences of opinion about sexual morality seem harder to coexist. I mean, you just look around and see how divisive these matters are in our own culture and people lose their minds. Uh, and it's very difficult to have civil conversations about differences of just interpreting scripture. And I'm not totally sure why that's the case. Final question. While you're thinking of the final question, I wanted to uh, tell a short story, and that is that Matt Carlin insisted on having a whiteboard. He sent special texts, emails. <laughs> I cleaned it. I moved it. Just to draw the circle. <laughs> I, I intended to do more than that, but then I changed my mind. He trolled me. You all saw it. He trolled me. So I'm not mad about it. I just need more people to know about this. He'll sneak up on you. Any other final questions? It, it was a great whiteboard. It's a very, actually not. A very I mean, decent circle. Part of the reason I don't write on it is because I'm scared that if I do, it's just going to you know, fall okay, apart. Okay, okay, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, final question over here. Um, so as we talk about, um, you know, sexual issues in the church and discussing them, um, what, I guess, both positive and negative or any role, um, does gender play into that? I mean, for example, we have the Time Up movement, which is all about, you know, women calling out men for um, sexual assault and whatnot. So um, in what ways could the church do a better job in not only discussing sexuality, but um, sexuality um, as it involves men and women specifically to their gender. Thank you for asking the easy questions. Um, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have to hear from more women, to hear more women speak on these subjects, to hear more female voices talk about these matters. That, that would be a start. Um, I think that, you know, I'm not really sure that I'm qualified to say much more than that, except that I think it would just help if women were more part of the conversation. And I don't just mean sitting out there, but also standing up here. Um, but that's a, that gets into other tricky theological issues that, you know, can be divisive as well. I think the, the Bible gives us great resources to remind us that that both male and female are created in God's image, and that there was uh, God's original intent for creation was that male and man and woman were equal before God. And I think it's worth pointing out that um, women were always a part of Jesus' ministry; that they were incredibly important leaders in the church. That uh, Paul says in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Scythian nor barbarian, male nor female, all are one in Christ. Um, I think that there is a way in which the patriarchal religious systems can make abuse easier to live with and easier to hide and make it less likely for us to confront so I think not allowing our kind of theological beliefs about leadership in the church to mask uh, sexual sin perpetrated by men 
and we're not the only ones perpetrating sexual sin, but I do think it's harder to call us out when we're also the ones in charge. So I think those are some thoughts I have about it, just having women more a part of the conversation. And again, the whole testimony of Scripture that uh, Jesus in radical ways, especially for his time, elevated the place of the outcasts, children, the diseased, the poor, women. And I think if we're going to be about the work that Jesus was about, we, we do the same thing. Great. That's a great place to end. This is a beginning of a conversation. We've begun it very well. Thank you very much, man. I hope uh, you uh, express your appreciation for Matt. We are going to close by reading a prayer together. So if you'll stand with me and let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your holiness and we thank you for your good gifts. And all things give us the strength to obey, the grace to forgive, and the love of God which satisfies. For your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great night.